White Sox, White Sox, go, 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 go. Call your sons, call your daughters. Holy cow. You can't put it on the board. Yes. Yes. It's a perfect game. Right after, grand slam. A White Sox winner and a world championship. Jimenez, he's your hero tonight. Thanks, Cubs. The dynamic duo of Herb Lawrence and Chris Tannehill. Those two are like a tag team, you know. Come with me to Southside of Chicago. Hi, this is Jim Tomey, and the best White Sox talk is on Locked On Sox Podcast with Tanny and Herb. Hello, and welcome back to Locked On Sox Mailbag Monday edition. My name is Herb Lawrence. That is Chris Tannehill. It's a glorious Labor Day. How are you feeling today, Chris? I'm doing good, Herbie. Happy Labor Day to everyone out there. Um, we're a little behind here with my buddy Bill Walton, so let's see. That's how many victories since we last spoke? That would be two additional victories for a four-game sweep of the Royals, and as you know... Well, I just want to walk a time plan. So we have two Bill Waltons to catch up on. How are you doing today, Bill Walton? The White Sox win. The White Sox win. Print the banner. Line up the parade. Michigan Avenue on the Studge Turkle Bridge Division Let's go. And episode number 56 of Locked on White Sox is brought to you by Roman. You know, guys, talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves, like saying things like, I lost my mojo, or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be a tough topic to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it, won't you? Your partner deserves it. You deserve it. Go to GetRoman.com slash LockdownMLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash LockdownMLB. GetRoman.com slash LockdownMLB. All right, Herbie, 56. Obviously, I mean, this there's, has never been a more clear-cut uh, episode in our history. I don't. I don't think we're obviously. This is the 1990 Scott Radinsky episode of Locked On White Sox. So welcome on in, everybody. I hope you all have a great holiday weekend. Uh, um, yeah, this one is. Th- 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 there's never been a more top-heavy uh, jersey number <laughs> for in White Sox history than number 56. Obviously, talking about the great. Mark Burley, or as Juan Uribe used to call him, Bailey. <laughs> I mean, this is one. Of, this is like a slam dunk right here, man. This is like one of both of our favorite players here. Oh yeah, there's there's no debate there. This man is just from a 38th pick. Uh, he went to a ju- junior college out in Missouri. 38th pick in in a junior college in Missouri. That's like. That's like a grade school anywhere else, so like that's really quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, drafted in 1998, and spent a little bit of time in the minors, and then he was up on that 2000 The Kids Can Play team quickly, uh, going 4-1 and one with a 421 ERA. I forgot I mean, that he pitched in the postseason that year. He had like some mop-up duty. I think it was in game two, uh, but I, I, don't, I have no recollection of him. I, I hate that series because... I was oh. in high school. I couldn't watch almost any of the games. Um, well, I went to game during, one during the day. Yeah, yeah. I went to game one. 
um, with, with my parents. And then the rest of the games, I couldn't watch any of them because I was either in high school or I was at work. I remember being in the Jewel bathroom when I worked on the Jewel on Addison and Broadway um, <laughs> during the final outs, just being mad, <laughs> like sneaking the radio into the Jewel bathroom when I was working, just being just super pissed off that the Sox had gotten swept. But I forgot Burley was in that series. Yeah, just like he's an amazing, amazing, like pitched with less than most pitchers. And we've debated on here is Mark Burley a Hall of Famer? And when I just, you know, took my White Soxness off of off of this, and you know, of course, for the White Sox is a Hall of Famer, his numbers are already retired and should be getting a statue post haste. But his numbers are favorable to some of the people who are already in the Hall of Fame. And I, I with his consistency, how good he was during his career, all the gold gloves that he won. I don't see why Mark Burley doesn't get more shine and more talk that he should be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, you know, we we give Hawk shit sometimes, you know, for all the comparisons that he used to have, but he always said that Mark Burley was like the modern-day catfish hunter. And if you look up Mark Burley's similarity scores and profiles with other other comps in, in, in Major League history, catfish hunter is like one of those guys, and he's one of the Hall of Famers that's on that list. So a five-time All-Star... World Series champion, four-time Gold Glove Award winner. Of course, the perfect game, July 23rd, 09. No-hitter, April 18th, 2007. With the number retired... But you know it's it's you know whether or not he's a Hall of Famer or not. This one I filed away that you know Pete Hand sent this to us uh, a few episodes ago when we were talking about Burley. I filed it away. Uh, he, Pete says this. Here's one thing to consider: look at the pitchers who have thrown a no hitter and a perfect game in MLB history: Sandy Koufax, Randy Johnson, Cy Young, Roy Halladay. Uh, Jim Bunning, Eddie Joss, and Mark Burley. So notice anything about that list? All are in the Hall of Fame except Mark Burley. So something to consider, you know, might, might be just one of those novelty stats. You know, you wouldn't have to twist my arm to get me to say, yes, Mark Burley's a Hall of Famer because I think he's part of that era where guys that, that pitched in that time frame uh, in the new millennium, they're going to have to bend the, the standards a little bit because you're not going to see any more 300-game winners. Um, guys don't rack up the Cy Young Awards, and you know, unless you know Clayton Kershaw is one of the, the all-time greats in this generation. But look at guys like John Lester, CC Sabathia, Mark Burley, like these are the best pitchers of their era, but without being super, super dominant and they don't have like the wow numbers, I don't think. But you talk about longevity stats, which which matter. You know, you talk about a guy, Mark Burley, 200 innings in 14 straight seasons. You know, he's up there with Maddox, Phil Negro, Christy Mathewson as far as that stat goes. So, you know, you factor all all of it in the no hitters and World Series. You know, he's you know one of the best pitchers on that staff for a team that broke an eighty eight year drought. I think I think when you look at it, he may not be a Hall of Famer uh, on on his first ballot, but I think eventually you'll see the writers vote him in because he was just so beloved by everyone who covered him. So I, I think you will see him get in eventually. What do you think? I mean, you named a couple people right there. You named John Lester, who was pitched 15 years, has a 44 war. Mark Burley has a 59 war, career war. If this is B war, by the way. If you guys are going to go by that, and Mark Burley had a much better career, according to that one metric, uh, than John Lester. Hall of Famer, Jack Morris, 18 years in the game, not close to Mark Burley. He's got a 43.5 B-War. Catfish Hunter, the guy we talked about, 41 war in his uh, 16 years. So, yeah, 
for you people thinking like, oh, no, it's just White Sox people talking and they're rooting over here for this guy. No, Mark Burley, while on the mound, was a ass kicker for his 16 years in the major leagues. And I think, what, 10 of them or 11 of them, he pitched 200 innings. That's unheard of. That will never be done again, I don't believe, not in this era. And the guy just came out and did consistent work, was fun. Kenny rained on his parade when he did the rain delay slide on the tarp. I think that should be the statue. If Mark Burley's ever commemorated with a statue, it should be him sliding somewhere on a tarp, like outside of the the ballpark. And people can can get down on on all fours and pose next to Burley sliding. I I think that would be appropriate. (laughs) Or have it out there, you know, by by the shower out there, you know, in the the outfield. But, I mean, when I think of him, just fun is one of the first things that comes to mind. Just, you know, playing a game with a certain amount of joy, but still being an you know, uber competitor. And I'll always just remember when the first thing I think of, you know, forget the no hitter and perfect game. You know, when I think of Mark Burley, I'll remember, you know, coming out and saving game three of the 05 World Series after, you know, sitting in the dugout being drinking, drunk. being drinking. Yeah, drunk. I don't know. Yeah, of course, we like to embellish, but, you know, just being. You know, I don't know how many beers a baseball player would have to drink to be drunk because they just a baseball player's like resting position is with a can of beer. So, but Mark Burley coming in to save that 05 World Series game three after just throwing back beers all day in the dugout, just what an epic drinking moment right there! What an, what an amazing athletic accomplishment! Here's like you know a huge game, one of the probably you know at to that point the biggest game in franchise history, and here he is like yeah, Coop, I got this. You know, <laughs> after tossing back a few Miller Lights and going in and. <laughs> Saving a World Series game against a pretty good lineup, man. Like, it just guys, just a, a White Sox legend. You know, if, even if he never sniffs the Hall of Fame, he's a legend to us. That 2010 flip play on opening day against the Indians, it's the greatest play I've ever seen in my life, like in person. You know, going, you know, going behind, first of all, having that ball bank off his leg and then going between the legs and then Canerco with the barehanded grab at first. It's, it's the greatest play I've ever seen in person. So that's one of the things I'll always think of uh, when I think of Mark Burley and his home run in 09. I remember uh, my my wife was graduating from DePaul at the time. She was like me. She was on the 10-year plan in college. And I remember the Sox playing the Brewers that day and looking at my phone and being like, Mark Burley hit a home run? God damn it. I can't believe I missed it because I'm at this dumb thing. <laughs> but yeah, man, just one of, my, one of my all-time favorites. And of course, like I'll forever be linked to that that perfect game. You know, me, Joe Ostrowski, and the great Mark Zerang, you know, Ed, you know, the, a lot of these people are not with us anymore. But every time I come down to my basement, I look at that scorecard for that perfect game and my you know ed was nice enough to put joe and i's name on there and it's something i'll never forget and whenever i i think of that day i'll not only think of mark burley but also just the personal relationships that we've had in this business and you know i, I it's it's a it's an it's a crazy thing man the, the things that bond people together but i'll always like whenever i think of mark burley just smile when i think of all those many many moments in a white Sox uniform and of course uh, an all-time great florida marlin <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I I want like one of these days just for him to come down and do a broadcast with Steve and uh, Benetti. I know you know physically he cannot, but you know maybe turn it on the TV down in Missouri, uh, <laughs> interrupt that softball game you're playing, Mark, and just talk to the fans a little bit because I miss him. Just the personality of Mark Burley, just. Every once in a while, like maybe every year, I want to hear from Mark Burley and Paul Canerco and see what they're doing. You know, we get the luxury of hearing Ozzy speak every night on the post game, and then Frank does it a couple times. But man, those guys, uh, personality plus, and 
Mark Burley just as a uh, stitch. I watched that that motorcycle show where they give you a new motorcycle and make it all fancy. I think American Choppers. Yeah. And they made Mark Burley a special one for his perfect game. And I watched that whole damn show, and I have zero interest in <laughs> motorcycles. But I watched because Mark Burley was on the episode, and they're doing it for him. I was I was very enthralled with it. So, yeah, it's um, if you ask any White Sox fan, Mark Burley is – if there's not their number one player, he's in their top five 100%. There's no way that Mark Burley doesn't make somebody's top five as a White Sox fan. Another thing I'll always remember of Mark Burley, just, you know, just that, that was my guy right there because whenever I would travel to see the White Sox play, you know, I wouldn't always try to line it up to see, to see Mark Burley pitch, but it was, you know, if you could, you certainly would try to do that, but. Seemingly every time I was on a, on a plane going to see the White Sox play, Mark Burley would be on the bump for the White Sox, and more often than not, it was to cities like New York and Boston, and more often than not, he was out there getting his ass shelled <laughs> by the AL East. So there I am out there in my, my my black number fifty six jersey, and you know just getting all types of shit from the fans, you know, in those uh, in those road cities, and oh boy, the things they they said to me walking down the ramp at the uh, old Yankee Stadium <laughs> in its last year of existence. Oof, uh, that was rough. <laughs> but uh, that's 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 you know what kind of guy Burley was. You were like, you know what? I'm proud to rock the number fifty six. You know when I'm seeing my team play because that's that's our guy. Even if he's getting shelled, I remember one time he, uh, the, the one of the last years I saw him pitch on the road. It was uh, he he pitched a great game. I think it was they lost two to one to the Yankees in the old Yankee Stadium, and it was none other than I think Burley was going for a complete game. And I think it was Wilson Bedemeet, of course, uh, of all people in the ninth inning, getting like a, a two-run double off him. And it was just like, of course, it was Wilson Bedemeet. You know, that, that's how it goes. But, uh, yeah, man, Bur- Burley, man, definitely a legend. And, by the way, if you're looking at the 2021 Hall of Fame eligibles, Mark Burley right there at the top of the list. But, you know, look at the other guys going in uh, as far as eligibility along with them. A.J. Burnett, Michael Kadire, Dan Heron, Tim Hudson, Tory Hunter, Adam LaRoche, Aramis Ramirez, Alex Rios, Nick Swisher, Dan Ugla, Shane Victorino, and Barry Zito. So it just there's a chance. There it just if you look at the guys that who he's eligible with, there's a there's a real good chance that, you know, I know they're not one to just nominate someone just because, but you know, you could be looking at who who do you think maybe uh, you'll have like Pat Hughes maybe going in for the Cubs, finally getting his Ford C Frick Award, and then Mark Burley for the White Sox. Like that, that would be fun. I'm just speculating here, but I mean, know. I know if there's nobody on the current ballot, those guys will try to get the old ballot people in. Like they'll try to get the Barry Bonds, uh, Roger Clemens, the guys who fell short this past year, and try to get them in and have their year instead of you know it could be an open year so they can either boycott it if they need to and not take the shine and spotlight away from a guy who is deserving. So I think that would be the BBWAA's plan to you know come together and say, okay, it's enough punishment for Rocket, enough punishment for Barry Bonds. Let's put them in. And this year where there's really no clear-cut guy, and maybe on that same ballot, like you said, writers love Mark Burley. And one of the reasons why I think David Ortiz will go in eventually – over all the rest of the people who have had this PED stink on them is because everybody loves Big Poppy. They love him. 
you know, not uh, drug lords, uh, drug lords in the Dominican, but everybody else <laughs> loves David Ortiz. So they'll overlook his PED stuff. And with Mark Burley, while his stats don't necessarily scream Hall of Famer, he's a Hall of Fame person and he's done things like you said that only Hall of Famers have done in the history of this game. So I think you pair him up eventually, maybe not a first ballot guy. But Mark Burley is getting into that Hall of Fame before we leave this earth, or before he leaves this earth. I might leave her earlier than that. But, you know, <laughs> I think Mark Burley will be a Hall of Famer, hell or high water. The numbers are good enough where you can say, okay, he's good enough. I mean, hell, Harold Baines made the Hall of Fame, guys. Come on. <laughs> I'll definitely go back to upstate New York to see number 56 enshrined with the, obviously, the shortest acceptance speech ever in the history of man. And that's why we loved him so much. Always kept those games short for us. So, we're, you know, working back in the score studios, you know, short games, nice and clean. But, yeah, so, yeah, I think that, that about sums it up about Mark Burley. And uh, so... So at this point, why don't we uh, open up the bag, shall we? Yes. A lot of emails. We're going to try to get to some. There's another email. I love email. And we love email, too. How can they get a hold of us and send us an email for next week's edition of Mailbag Monday, Herbie? Email early. Lockedonsocks at gmail.com. That is lockedonsocks at gmail.com. Questions, comments, funny anecdote, whatever you want to send us. We'll read them. Doesn't make mean they'll make the show, but email LockedOnSocks at gmail.com to get on our Mailbag Monday edition. Absolutely. First one, this is actually one we got this morning, but I thought it was topical. Um, our guy, John Ye Kest, writes this. He goes, at the time of this email, the Sox have a 99.8% chance of making the playoffs. Assuming this is the case and they do make the playoffs, which teams do you feel like the Sox would match up best against slash matchup worst against so i'll hang up and listen thanks john aka john yakest um yeah I, I, okay i'll let you start on this one herbie but just before we get answer this question gotta love that four game sweep of the royals we didn't mention that yet only briefly at the beginning but it was just so emotionally fulfilling whenever you can sweep the royals in four games good lord that was fun Oh, yeah, I love it. It's always good, and we predicted it on Friday's episode last time we talked to that we felt confident with our two studs going to the bump that we're going to get dubs over the Kansas City Royals, and it feels great. Nine out of ten wins this year for the Kansas City Royals against Kansas City Royals. We're good. We're, we're real good on that. It's We spoke about this before the season. When you play Kansas City, no matter what is your White Sox, and if you're, if you're a fan, you know that – Kansas City gives the White Sox everything they can handle every year, and it was good to just whoop them this year, just to have a couple tight games, but for most part, just beat the hell out of them. And that Whit Merrifield garbage, come on, man, that's <laughs> we've subdued that junk. He only hit one home run off us. What a what a trash player he is. <laughs> I, I understand why no one wants him. Oh garbage yeah, Whit Merrifield, absolutely. Um, how, so I don't know if you watched yesterday the whole thing, but. Uh, my heart jumped up to my throat when uh, Dallas Keuchel left that game, but fortunately, it looks like it's just some back tightness and he's day to day. But I, you know, the first thought in my mind was they're done if they don't have him the rest of the way. They're, I don't even know if you know they'll make the playoffs. I, you know, mm-hmm. barely. But in terms of winning a division and going deep in the playoffs, like that's they're done if they don't have Dallas Keuchel. Did you think the same thing? Yeah, that's with him and or Lucas Giolito. They need both of those guys to be 100% healthy, and still that might not do the job in the playoffs. But, yeah, that's what happened. I was like, uh-oh. Leaving the mound without 
like an actual pitch being thrown or when it's in between innings is always scary to me because that means that something happened in the warm-ups and when something happens in the warm-ups, that's the pitcher taking himself out. And when you take yourself out, it's like, oh, you know that something's really wrong. And a guy like that who's going to battle through anything and he's a bulldog won't be coming out just for minor things. And, you know, back stiffness is not a necessarily minor thing and it sounds minor enough and i think that he won't miss a spot in his rotation this is a time for him to get a rest if need be because of all the off days they have up now so uh uh hopefully godspeed will uh healthy recovery for dallas if he wants to skip a start or take a couple extra days do it get ready for the postseason because he's been our best pitcher yes i said he's been our best pitcher this year when Dallas Keiko goes out there you know he's had no clunkers he's absolutely had zero clunker outings uh for the Sox in his in his White Sox tenure so but but that leads to the inherent problem with this team I think as we explore potential postseason matchups like you know they have to win the Giolito and Keiko games in a playoff series or else you know like I it's conceivable that they could get into a game three and just mash their way to a victory but I don't like the way this this team sets up as it sits right now in a in a short series against pretty much anyone because you haven't been thrilled by the way that they've competed against the Twins. You know it was nice that they got that one win and they it was a tight game. Then they just got their ass kicked on the third game. But I don't really know that I'd be clamoring for any of these teams that are that are at the top of their divisions. Like I don't know if I if I want the smoke with the Astros or with the, with the Rays right now. You know what I mean? Like I'd be I'd be very careful about saying, "Hey, they match up good against this team." But I will say this though, you know, their bats can match up against anyone. And really that's all you need is you put up a big first inning in a game 3, you know, hit a couple bombs and all of a sudden you're up 3 or 4 nothing against a team like the Astros. And then maybe, you know, it doesn't matter if you have Dylan Cease or Dayton Dunning out there pitching game three. You know what I mean? Like they have the, the power to, to mash their way uh, against any opponent. But, you know, good pitching always beats good hitting, in my opinion. So that's why I'm I'm not excited about this team in the playoffs. Anything can happen, obviously, with the variance. But I'm just, I'm just happy they're going to be there, which I think is the appropriate place at this stage where they're at with the rebuild. Like, I, I'm, I'm happy. I've, I'm thrilled with the success they've had now. But I, I think to expect them to go deep with the roster as it's you know constructed right now, I think that would be uh, that that would be a kind of a stretch. I think uh, to expect them to go deep. So I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I think the team that I'm scared of the most in this in these matchups is the Oakland A's, which they wouldn't probably have to face until the second or the ALCS. Um, yeah, they just I've been watching them play baseball. It's just tough and. I want the White Sox to have a better record than them so we don't have to look at that goddamn ballpark and how dark it is. And I hate Oakland. That's where dreams go to die. Well, it would be neutral site, and, right? No. I mean, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, playoffs are neutral. They yeah. Have, uh, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> They're neutral. So we'll be in either Los Angeles or San Diego for those games for the AL championship, as it looks like. And a little bit better. I'm a little bit happier there because, ugh. That Oakland stuff, it's just depressing. Watching a night game there, just like, oh, God, I know we're going to lose, firstly. And what's up with the lighting? I know it's a football stadium, so it's the light, lights are farther away. But, God damn it, give me some give me some better illumination here. This is why this place sucks so much. Can't hit, and foul territory is forever. 
and they're good too. I mean, that Luriano guy, Olsen, Chapman, and fucking Simeon. They just have people after people. And then the, the pitcher staff, Manaya, which is a lefty, so we might get to him. Padres got to him the other day, but I just look at that Oakland team, and every single year I look up, the damn Oakland A's are good for some damn reason, and they're good again this year. Yeah, I, I don't really like any of the matchups particularly. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the Astros pitching staff, you know, with the guys that they've got over there, you know, known known commodities, you know, it's it's that's why it's so weird this year. Like seriously, you talk about in the in the past how the postseason is based on variance and and randomness, but this year more than ever because these teams haven't seen each other. So I I talked about it in the last episode, I think, where, you know, you don't read your scouting report correctly or you just don't execute and you know there there is no like oh this guy owns this guy i don't think you're talking about this one game one at bat one pitch and all of a sudden it changes the the outlook of an entire series but you know i would love for the white Sox though to be the team to to knock the astros out personally i think that would be hilarious you talk about uh, if you want to take that next step towards national recognition and national love, like you would have so many people that were White Sox fans if they bounced the Astros out in the first round. But that's just selfishly thinking and thinking of national narratives, which I, I love my narratives so much. But yeah, well, you know I, who the White Sox would face in the first round if it started today? I, th- I thought it was the Astros. No, or did that change? No, <laughs> the White Sox is the number two seed now. And the number seven seed, who they play in the first round, a best of three series, is the Minnesota Twins. Oh, jeez. They're a little dinged up now, though. They've, 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 they've gotten the injury bug a little bit since the Sox uh, left Minnesota. So, you know, I don't know. I, I don't like that matchup. You know, we talked about the problems with, with the Twins. You know, I, I would prefer to not have that. Um, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm not going to worry about about this stuff until they get there. But to answer the question in short, uh, it's too late to, for that to answer it in short. But, yeah, I, I, I'm not – I, I, I'm, there's not one team where I'm like, oh yeah, bring them on. You know, I think I'm just along here for the ride, and you know, I'll just, you know, take it as it comes. You know, so I'm, I'm just excited that they're in this position. Quite frankly, yeah, it's a good, t- it's a good position to be in, and a good problem to have. All right, next one here from our guy Mike Victor. Is it true? Michael. <laughs> Absolutely. Michael, one of our great, great listeners and always uh, interacts with us on, on social media at Locked on Socks and, of course, on the Mailback Monday. One of the many uh, people responsible for our, uh, I guess you could call it success with this podcast. So uh, we, we appreciate and we Mike. we met him at Lunar, too. Exactly. We appreciate Mike very much. Uh, Mike says this. Hey, guys, out in the Western Burbs, you see a lot of sock swag more than usual. Hats and shirts everywhere and a multitude of different flags. I wear my black standard hat daily, but should I upgrade my fandom to a full-on flag to post up outside in front of my house? Maybe one of those small flags that go on the little flag holder thingy that my wife bought. (laughs) That's very specific. I don't know how big or small the little flag thingy your wife bought was, Mike. Uh, Also, if I go full flag, how often do I fly it? I'm torn. Would love your input. Undecided. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for, for writing that. Uh, this one hits very close to home, quite literally and figuratively, Herb. But you, you, Herb, you're, you're, I don't think you have this luxury living where you're at to decide whether or not you're going to be a flag-waving member of the fandom. But just I think it makes you a perfect candidate to answer this question. How do you approach this if you're Mike? I mean, I know the reasons why people – fly flags you want to show what that house is all about but if you're going to fly the flag you better check up on u.s flag code because i will not have any breaches of this this sacred law 
Uh, I see, I live on the north side up here in Ravenswood, and I see a lot of W flags. And these are, of course, for the Cubs. And I see a lot of them. I'm look, I check out the box score, and the Cubs lost. I'm like, huh. this is not weird. This is not appropriate. <laughs> this is not appropriate at all. If you check the the etymology of why the W flag does fly, is because of people coming home after a day ball game, not knowing if the Cubs won or lost back in the day. And the W flag flying over Wrigley Field to signify, or the blue L flag flying to signify a win or loss earlier in the day. So, if you are going to be that flag guy, don't be like Cub fans, where they just leave the W flag out there forever. Observe U.S. flag code. The White Sox, you can fly that flag all the time because ours does not signify either or. But make sure your flag is in good working order. No tatters at the end. And if there's good winds that uh, ruin your flag, go and buy another one. Make sure that your flag is representing White Sox quality at all times. Absolutely. And I say this one hits close to home for me because uh, we live on the northwest side here of Chicago uh, in Harwood Heights. And when we bought our home, our agent uh, from uh, our friends at uh, D'April Properties, um, Catalina. Ooh, Jackie April? <laughs> yeah, Jackie Jr. of Properties. Uh, but she bought us, as a housewarming present after we bought the home, she bought us a White Sox flag, which was very nice of her to do so. And, um, you know, we don't have a flag uh, holster out in front of my home, and I don't have even all the tools to install one because I guess if you're – if you're drilling into brick, you have to have a different type of drill that like that hammers the bit in there. It's it's a whole thing, right? So I never bothered to put it up, but also I never really put it up because the socks weren't good in 2018 when we moved here. Um, but I will say the first time I ever thought about putting it out was after the Eloy Jimenez home run against the Cubs last season. Thanks, Cubs! And I wanted to not only put the flag up, I wanted to run around my block waving it. And not, it's not even like this is a big Cub fan contingent out here. You know, it's just a, it's a lot of older people and a lot of, like, Polish immigrants, so you don't see a lot of anything, really. Um, but that was the first time I was like, I, I'm going to take this flag out, out of storage and really represent. But it's a weird thing, like, when you live in a neighborhood – you sort of uh, have to bend uh, to whatever the un- – it's like the unwritten rules of baseball. You have the unwritten rules of your of your block or your streets or your neighborhood. But there are there's no sports team flags out here in my neighborhood. So that's one thing to consider. So if I put my black White Sox flag out in front of the house, you know, that, people would definitely be like, oh, okay, what's this guy up to over here? I don't know if I like this. That's an eyesore. You know, everyone keeps their lawn in relatively good, good shape. And, you know, you have to like – consider you know your neighbors and other things now back when i lived in portage park you know that was a big time cub fan contingent out there so there were cubs flags like on every other house and then there was blackhawks flags like the guy would would roll his big screen tv out during the playoffs in 2010 and people would just walk by and watch the hawks and and the stanley cup playoffs so it was different uh than living out here um but i think if you're gonna do it just do it now because i would think that you don't have to take it in every night, you know. I, I, you know, I guess that's flag code. You don't, you, you know, with the American flag. I remember my dad used to have one out in front of our house. Like every night, you take it in. Like that was part of flag protocol. You don't leave it hanging out there all night long, you know. So that's a good patriot. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know what you, what you do here. If you want to, if you got a flag, go ahead and fly it, man. You know, whatever feels right to you. You just sort of just take the temperature of your block and your street and your fandom. But now is the time to do it before they win a playoff series. And all of a sudden you look like you're jumping on a bandwagon. Like that's going to be me probably realistically. I'm going to like go half-assed about it. And then all of a sudden they'll win the World Series. I'm like, oh, now's a good time to put this flag out. Meanwhile, it's been in my coat closet for two years already. You know, you're going to so. overdo it and just have just <laughs> 17 white sock flags over your house exactly so yeah man go ahead mike go ahead and fly it man who, who cares you know if you got you got to represent man but just always the, the haters are always going to be in play if you if you leave it up uh, unattended someone's always you know there's a lot of pettiness going on right now like i was watching the, the cubs and cardinals last night and they basically took over the whole broadcast talking about uh, white Sox love i don't know if you watched any of that but it was like the game was kind of dull the cardinals were, were whooping their ass and all of a sudden it was like hey guys how about the white Sox? aren't they fun they like to have fun in the dugout and like and they just started showing the white Sox highlights they show encarnacion and his parrot out there in the middle of the sunday night broadcast so you know the haters are always going to be in play mike so just you know that going in you know flags aren't expensive so be ready to have one right on deck you know to, to replace it I, I, maybe that's just the cynic in me thinking that if you know because people would steal people in the city they steal shit all the time you know you can't leave anything out in the city so i want to just come by and grab it so but yeah just i, I would say go ahead if, if, if it feels good go ahead and do it man that's that's why they're there for it there's never be never been a better time to be a Sox fan is when your team is like on the cusp of doing what they're doing and they're just they're fun so go ahead and represent man before people call you a bandwagon fan after it's too late so because i know if i were living in mike's neighborhood i'd see that flag go up after they you know win the division i'd be like oh okay i see how it goes but so get it out there early and often mike next one here coming in from jeff lester he goes by at nancy faust dog on twitter <laughs> jeff says love the show after no deals on monday han was quote impressed with the chemistry unquote obviously the chemistry and swag is palpable on the field but is this Rick setting the table for not making moves in the offseason, i.e., quote, we don't think George Springer is a good fit for our team chemistry, et cetera? Well, first of all, let's talk about what Rick Hahn did because I don't think we talked about that, that meeting that Rick had with the veteran players. And I never saw mm-hmm. a list of the players who they met with, but Rick Hahn and I think Kenny Williams met with a, a, a veteran leadership group to you know sort of take their temperature on whether or not they thought that they should add uh, some big name pieces at the deadline, and apparently they said no. They they like the mix as it stands right now. So, what what did you think about Rick Hahn sort of taking the temperature of the room before going out and just doing his job? I kind of like it. I was a fan of the keeping the team together philosophy because they had gotten to a certain point without any uh, new players. So, whatever the team was doing at the point and they were in first place and now currently still in first place at the time, I think can say it was probably Tim Anderson, definitely Dallas Keuchel, definitely Jose Abreu in that room for the other four. I don't know. McCann probably. I would think McCann would be in the mix with that too. Maybe Yasmani. Yeah. And so there were seven guys in that room and they just wanted to stay pat because they got the, the chemistry going on, the, the the winnings going on, the team feels good. Nothing on this team, you know, subtracting anything from this team, especially uh, even their young pitchers who are not doing all that well. Like Dylan Cease has a good record, but he's not doing great where you're like, oh, man, we, we need Dylan Cease. But they feel like Dylan Cease and Dane Dunning and these young players, Nick Madrigal, Andrew Vaughn, even though he's not with the club, are too valuable for the team's future. And there's nothing that 
is out there that's going to put them over the top for being a huge contender because they already are one now. So it's good that he got the temperature of the team and he shouldn't do that more often. A GM and a president of a vice president of baseball operations should always make sure that his players are comfortable with what they're feeling. Uh, if they need something, Hey, we can go and get it. I think that was in 2017 where Dallas Keuchel himself was pissed that the Astros didn't do anything at the regular trade deadline. Yep. And then in the waiver deal trade line, they went out and got Justin Verlander to put them over the top. That's what veterans do. That's what GMs and front offices do. They listen to their leadership to they because they know what they need to get over the top. And yes, the Astros have a different story about cheating and stuff, but they won because of guys like Justin Verlander on their team. So, um, yeah, if Dallas said there's nothing else that's needed here, I'm going to go with Dallas. He sees this team as they are, and if, even if they don't succeed to the highest of high levels this year, I will still stick by Rick Hans and my choice to stay pat, don't be trading anybody, wait until the offseason. And I, as far as this setting up for a postseason or offseason uh, type of same deal where he doesn't get anybody, that would be a mistake. There's no way in hell that after this year, even if they win the World Series, that you don't go and get better players. You have a, a, a flux of good young players and a hole in right field right now and a hole at starting pitching. So they need to fill either or those people, if not both. And I don't know why a team would just stay pat with the current roster. Even if you get stunning and great outings from Dane Dunning and Dylan Cease going down the stretch, I still think you need the one more guy, one more starter to solidify that going forward into a long 2021, we hope a long 2021 campaign where – it's going to be buck 62. It's going to be their actual first years of pitching a full year. So the growing pains of that, Michael Kopech coming back, all those things you want to ease him into pitching for the White Sox for a full year too. Without a good starting pitcher, a guy who's a top of the rotation guy, I don't see this team advancing past any level in a regular year. This year is different because of the, the quirkiness of the playoffs and how it's isolated in one spot three games a best of three and then a best of five then a best of seven it's it's very odd it's not the regular uh, norm that we're going to be going through i think in the future i think the playoffs might change back hopefully or at least uh change to a better format because that best of three thing imagine if you're a, a team like battling to get into the playoffs tanning like the white Sox are and you're going toe-to-toe that last week i think it's first the indians and the cubs and you're set. You're trying to get the division. You're probably already safely in the playoffs, but you're trying to get the division. And so you throw your best pitchers, and maybe you don't set up your playoff positioning for those best pitchers. And so you throw Dallas Keuchel and you throw Lucas Giolito those last two games for the Cubs, and then you got to go a best of three series starting that series with goddamn Dane Dunning or Dylan Cease. And then maybe one of those guys are not ready for game two. And then you got to start it up with one of the other of those guys and then only get one game with Lucas Giolito or Dallas Keuchel. This is what I'm having the trouble with on this best of three game series uh, to start thing. You play all these good ass games. You play so well. 
and then you might go home on some fluky shit where a team has their best pitchers play and gets your guys. They win two games, and you're going your ass home. Yeah, that that's the thing about about this team this year. You know, I think this is very much a house money type of year, where I think they should do everything they can to win that division, like you said, down the stretch, and you know, just let the chips fall where they may in in that postseason series. And I know every opportunity in the postseason is sacred, and this may be the easiest road to the postseason that you'll see while this window's open you know uh it's you know next year when there's 162 it's going to be a battle every day like you see how it is with the with the twins and indians right now and the white Sox. you know it is within a half game each other game of each other you know it, it's going to be a dogfight the next like five years or so and this may be the easiest road they have but i think they're they're looking at it with a, a house money perspective and they should do everything they can to get the best seating possible but once they're in there i think they're all just content with you know just whatever happens happens and and so they're you know i think they have the offense that could overcome a lot of this stuff and it may not matter but in terms of them not adding i'm cool with them having michael kopech for what is it five six more years than having lance lynn for this year and next year you know like and and i wonder if they talked about Kopech in that meeting, you know, if, if they talked to a guy like McCann, be like, all right, what, what do you think, James? Like you've seen, you've seen this kid throw, you know, Dallas, you've seen him throw in spring training. Like, you know, I think they decided, you know, Dylan Cease was probably brought up too. like, what do you, what do you think of this club? If, if we all of a sudden strip Dylan Cease out of the mix, who's still developing and figuring things out, this is only, you know, he's only been there like a, a calendar year like in the big mm-hmm. league. So like, I th- it would be a little too soon, I think to give up on Dylan Cease. Cause really all he has to do, he's got, like an ERA of like three and a half now and I know we talked about the uh, the advanced numbers you know not looking great for him and a regression could be coming but this is a guy that just needs to learn how to get proper spin on that fastball proper proper rise on it and locate a little bit better and and I think all of a sudden you're you're good with him you know so I'm not in the camp of trading him just for this year of of Lance Lynn and, and next year because he hasn't necessarily been lighting it up himself either. So yeah, I'm I'm with the the whole this this year's house money. You know, we talked about them, you know, maybe winning ninety games in a regular one sixty two slate here this year and and now look at them. Like they're sitting at top of the division and with a couple weeks left to go here. So I, I'm cool with, with them just, you know, staying put right now because then they get to see they have a more clear view uh, next year of what they need to add. And I, I do have my reservations. I worry about them crying poor because that's always in play when you're talking about the White Sox, you know, half-assing it. Um, but hopefully, you know, they'll have a more clear financial picture of what 2021 is going to look like. And I think they'll have a little bit of a, a season ticket base bump. And so that should help in that regard. And hopefully there's a vaccine and we're back to gathering people in, in larger groups again so they can have a better clear indication um, and, and, and I think that, you know, that you'd have to think that they, they wouldn't all of a sudden just, you know, say, you know, cry poor, you know, um, <laughs> you would hope not. Uh, I, I had my doubts going into this last offseason that they would do all the things that they had to do to make the team better. But th- th- there they go, signing Dallas Keuchel, who's been one of the MVPs of this team and signing in- Encarnacion, who's starting to hit a little bit. So. Yeah, man, like I'm cool with them staying put the way they were. And I know we didn't talk about it a lot, but yeah, I, I like this team as it is now. I like the chemistry, and that's something people, you know, they they spend a lot of money and resources trying to figure out chemistry in a big league ball club. And no one knows exactly how to get it, but they do know once you have it, you don't want to mess it up. So I, I totally mm-hmm. get their perspective on not making any additional moves that would ups that would rock the boat. Because you're talking about guys that 
have pitched for the White Sox already at the big league level. You're talking about Kopex, Cease, Dunning, you know, guys who have already sort of formed relationships. I don't think you're talking about guys like you know, Jonathan Stever or Mike Rodolfo who haven't played in the big leagues yet. You know, I think that's an easier decision to trade some of those guys. But you're talking about rocking the boat as as it as it sits right now. So I, I respect what Rickon did there in that in that regard. But at the same time. They know where their holes are. You know, they, they've got some pitching depth. They got some bullpen depth issues. If Bummer goes down, like you see how everyone else gets taxed. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. You know, we'll, we'll have to hold them to their own standard uh, uh, in that regard. So, yeah, thank you very much for the email, uh, Nancy Faust Dog on Twitter. Appreciate that. Next email up here is from our guy, Charlie. Charlie asks this. How would you rank these guys in terms of popularity among Sox fans? Adam Dunn, Adam LaRoche, or Robin Ventura, in parentheses, as manager? <laughs> Herbie, this is this is, uh, is this like a, a, a Mary uh, F. Kill type of situation here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say the most popular, even though you're just saying just as a manager, would be Robin Ventura because he couldn't do as much damage as those other two did to this team. And <laughs> I know you guys are sitting out there saying, well, he did this, that, and the other. He didn't win us in 12. Uh, that 12 team was terrible. And we the, we won the games in spite of the manager and didn't lose because of him. I mean, you had a three-game lead that was just, you know, they got tired and Detroit was better. I think Detroit, right? 2012? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, and Adam – Dunn had one Adam Dunn-like year for the White Sox. Remember that first year when we hit that home run on opening day? We're like, all right, here we go. Adam Dunn's going to be a stud. That was a great I do remember because I, Kenny, Kenny I was there, <laughs> yeah. as were you. <laughs> and I think, what, he hit 10 more home runs the rest of the year for like yeah. a career-low 11 home runs in a season. He was one of the worst players of all time in White Sox history all, to get all those at-bats. He was just horrid. And, of course, we know the whole Adam LaRoche, Drake LaRoche thing. They're just not persona non grata here. And it's hard to take out Robbins playing with his managing. I mean, because that's why he became the manager is because he was such a great player. He didn't even um, want to be the manager. <laughs> so no. it's, it's really hard to hold that against him. Like, he seriously had to be talked into it, <laughs> which is like, well, I was worried about Paul Konerko, but that being in play, like having to coax Paul Konerko out of retirement and coaching his kids to manage the White Sox. You know what I mean? Like, they have their minds made up sometimes. Kenny Williams like, no, 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 Robin, you're going to be the manager. Yeah, I don't really know. No, no, you're, 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 the press conference is in five minutes. <laughs> we need that was Come on, hurry up. That was always very yeah. weird to me, yeah. And so, yeah, I would say Robin by a mile, even though he was a bad manager, take that how you will. And then I would put Adam Dunn as number two. And Adam LaRoche for me is one of the worst signings the White Sox ever had. Um, he did have a track record before he was on there, so I don't blame the – Kenny or Rick for signing him when same thing with Adam Dunn. Adam Dunn, that was a knockout of the park signing. And I do it on the process, not necessarily the results. The results were terrible for both those guys, but I didn't see any problems with acquiring those two guys. But Adam LaRoche brought zero to the table. Um, kids always in the damn d dugout where players are trying to be professional and doing their thing. And then was like, was taken aback that focus was talking that your kids in the clubhouse too much and then retired and took his ball and went home. Well, here's the thing about, about 
Adam LaRoche. Um, obviously, you know, the, the gaping hole that was left when he left with Drake not being there to be a leader. We've lost a leader in Drake. The kid was so tremendous. He was so tremendous, uh, Adam Eaton. But people, you know, the one thing that's not talked about in this in this sports generation of guaranteed contracts and big money and you know you can't move this guy because of the money and yeah this guy's not going to retire because he's making too much money adam the roast straight up left <laughs> and it was like hey we're taking this contract off the books so i don't look at it as badly as a lot of people do and the whole thing was a disaster but it created a lot of content for us in the sports radio business the fallout after Adam LaRoche retired, you know, with the whole, you know, the Todd Frazier and Jimmy Rollins thing and the Chris Sale MF and Kenny Williams, which ultimately was the precursor to the rebuild and tearing up the throwback jerseys. You know, like people forget it, but like there was a lot of content after that. And he just took the money off the books. So it's hard for me to look at at the Adam LaRoche tenure as, as a bad one because he basically gave them an out. Like he's like, no, I don't need the money. Like, could you imagine like them going forward if it was like, oh, sorry, we can't make a move here because we have the Adam LaRoche contract. You know, you never see that in sports. So like, I don't look at it as terribly, but yeah, I would have to rank them popularity. Robin as a manager because it's literally impossible to distinguish him as a manager and player because if you grew up in the 90s i know he's your favorite player he was one of my favorite players too i had the hot corner poster in my room as a kid and he had to be talked into taking the job he didn't even want the job and you know he i don't even think he wanted like to, to get extended either and they extended his contract he was like yeah i don't really know like no no we're extending you okay fine i'm back i'd, I'd go robin ventura adam laroche in my personal opinion and yeah. adam dunn uh, because the Adam Dunn thing just, you know, it just, uh, it was just brutal. It was horrendous. I, I, I can't remember seeing a player drop off that considerably and, and just underwhelm the way Adam Dunn did. And I f- certainly felt bad for him every step of the way because this is a player who was, you know, he was, he was a great power, power producer, like for many years. He was a great run producer. And all of a sudden, he comes into a team with expectations and all of a sudden he just falls flat and, and he looked really bad while doing it. But that's always the thing that I think about when I think about the White Sox bringing in big time free agents. It's one of the things I thought about with the Manny Machado situation because whenever you have a player like Manny Machado, Bryce Harper coming in and they're going into a big market and they got a big contract, like it's it's impossible for them not to feel those expectations. And it took Manny Machado a while to get settled. And I know Bryce Harper, it took him a while. To, you know, he had, he had a hot you know, start early, had some big moments early in Philadelphia, but it took him a while to get settled, you know, and, and I think, you know, sometimes fans will turn on you forever. And mm-hmm. maybe that's pro- partly why Manny Machado has had such a resurgence this year and being a big part of that team is because you don't have you know the fan presence there every day. You sort of strip that layer, layer of expectations away, and you can just sort of be yourself. Like I, I always worry about that, and I would worry about that with George Springer coming in because George Springer is not – uh, a household name he's like not on that tier of Manny Machado Bryce Harper in terms of national recognition you know he's a great player in his own right and a world champion but you bring him all of a sudden to a, a major market like Chicago on a team on the cusp of being a world series contender and I would worry about that giving him a lot of money not because he's not a good player and I, I you know certainly he benefited like everyone else did on that Astros team from that cheating they were doing but I, I liked him before that you know he's you know great guy to have on your team but I would worry about giving him a big time contract as with anyone i'm not saying they shouldn't go out and try to sign him but it's always built into 
a big free agent contract, I think, in my opinion, because I think of, I go back and I think of Adam Dunn. You know, these guys don't just come here and just start hitting. You know, they don't, they don't start performing right away. There's always a little bit of, you know, acclimation time and a little bit of, you know, you guys have to find themselves a little bit. So, yeah, man, it's the Adam Dunn thing will always forever change the way I feel about a big free agent signing, you know. So, they Sox haven't had many of them, but the Adam Dunn forever, it kind of like just, you know, scarred me to my core, you know. But I, I think it's uh, sort of an uh, indication of the modern day athletes and the expectations that we put on them. So, we should always uh, think about that going into any big time signing. So, but I, But having said that, you're still on board for George Springer, aren't you? A hundred percent. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've done the thing where you just explained it, the big time free agent signings for the White Sox falling short. And I would think that most White Sox fans would think that the one that they had this year, Drasmani Grandel has fallen short of expectations, even though now he's hitting uh, 256, 376 and 440. I think White Sox fans are expecting more at this point from what Yasmani Grandal has done. And now I think he is just getting comfortable with the surroundings and what he's doing. Um, uh, the, the playing time situation with him and Chase O'Can, he's getting comfortable with it. So, so is Encarnacion. They're, he's, they're both starting to hit at the perfect time. So I, mm-hmm. I still don't think, like we talk about how great this lineup is, like I still don't think that the the full ceiling has been reached you know I, like I, it seems like they're clicking at the right time here which is uh, which is so fun to see man and then Eloy's starting to hit a little bit but yeah I would say you know it, it takes the pressure off when you're coming into a team with a, a young core like the White Sox and all of a sudden you have all that talent already locked in they, they're not playing for a contract guys like Moncada and Eloy and Luis Robert they don't have their they're not playing for their next contract so they're they're playing loose and they're playing free and I think that helps a lot when you have a solid culture uh, already built in so I, I think it would be the best case for someone to come in and thrive uh, in a situation like this because there's so much talent around and you're not coming in to be the guy you know, Adam Dunn was brought in to sort of prop up what was the the, the last breath of of a of a world championship team's window. You know, the guys that were still kicking around. You know, they had won the World Series seven years prior to 2012, and you had still guys like Canerco and AJ hanging around. You know what I mean? So like, he was he was meant to sort of prop all that up, that house of cards. You know, so that that's why it's a little bit different with the White Sox now. But yeah, uh, I hope they do go out and try to grab someone like George Springer and uh, just just always remember those expectations going in. These are human beings too, and I think you saw that with uh, the guys like Dunn and LaRoche coming in from smaller markets to a city like Chicago with a with a very, very salted, peppery fan base <laughs> as the White Sox fan base is. So uh, thank you, Charlie, for checking in as always. Charlie, another one of our great listeners. Uh, next one here, this is Derek from Hudsonville, Michigan. Hi, guys. Love the show. Just wondering, and this may be absolutely crazy. Love it. Love it. Love crazy questions. But what do you think of the idea of trying James McCann in left field and keeping him on the White Sox for the future? That's Derek in Hudsonville, Michigan. Go ahead, Herbie. Go ahead to handle this one. I mean, no, we're not going to do that, firstly. And secondly, I mean, I like the crazy. I like the out-of-the-box bo- out uh, thinking. It's fine. Um but we have Eloy there, and I don't like Eloy there, but we have a glut at the first baseman slash DH spot. So Eloy will be at in left field for the probably next five years of his career until he turns into his late 20s, early 30s. He'll probably still be in fielder because um, he wants to be firstly. And secondly, 
Um, I think it's way too early to switch him to DH. Not for me. It's not way too early. I would love it, but we still have Edwin on the team. Option year for next year. Maybe they'll exercise him. Maybe they won't. But next year, we're going to have Andrew Vaughn on the team. He will be on this White Sox team or traded for a valuable piece. So he needs a spot, either first base or DH. Um, and I don't think James McCann will change his whole <laughs> positioning just to stay on the White Sox. He would have to get paid a bunch of money. Right now, he's getting paid almost $6 million to be the backup catcher for the White Sox. I say at minimum, next year he's making $10 million, and that is to start for a team. If some team wants a nice uh, offensive-minded and defensive-minded catcher to start their franchise or to push them over the top, James McCann is the perfect guy to have. I say it's a 95% chance that James McCann is not on the White Sox next year. The 5% is James McCann relenting and just taking a backup role for the White Sox, understanding his role is just to be the personal catcher for Lucas Giolito and then to give Yasmani Grandal a blow every once in a while. But he's gone, guys. I want White Sox fans. This is half the reason why I want Lucas Giolito to start pitching Yasmani Grandal because he's going to have to start getting used to it next year because that's what's going to be the guy that he's going to have to throw to. And so just get used to James McCann not being on this team. Saver the James McCann-ness that you can. Just get all the morsels you can of James McCann this year because he'll be gone next year. Um, thank you, Derek, for channeling your inner Hawk Harrelson as general manager uh, <laughs> identity here, yeah. trying to take your best yeah, catcher. Yeah, left field, yes. <laughs> for those who don't know, that's one of Hawk's first moves as GM for the White Sox. I think it was was in 86 where he took Carlton Fisk and moved him to the outfield, which is like, good God, man. Um, but I, I appreciate you, Derek. But uh, here's what, you know, in, 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 in regards to McCann, I think what you'll see here in Around Baseball is you're going to see guys who are entering free agency and there's going to be some more collusion where teams are not going to want to spend money and they're going to want to try to, you know, uh, cook the books a little bit. I, I think you're going to see guys that are, like McCann, who are maybe on the cusp of a payday, but are in good situations. Um, McCann's certainly in a good spot here. He doesn't have to play every day. I, th I think you're going to see him sign for a one-year deal with the Sox because of the financial uncertainty on the market. And, you know, a guy like him is not going to be like on the 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 top tier of guys that are going to be wined and dined by by teams across baseball. So I think he'll he'll stay put for comfortability. They'll give him a nice little bump, I think, and, and I think he'll be around next year and then maybe try his luck again in free agency the year after that, even though a guy his age doesn't necessarily profile better uh, after a one, an additional year of catching on the free agent market. But I think just for the sake of him – in his future, I think he'll just say, you know what, I like the spot we're in right now. We're right there in terms of the, the White Sox. They're right there on the cusp of contending for a World Series. And I think he'll stay stay put for a year and maybe try to test the waters again and maybe see if the Sox want to give him like another team-friendly uh, contract and extend him out a little bit. So, yeah, I, I think he'll be back next year. I'm more optimistic in that regard because I think he's got a lot of – a lot, a lot of investment here uh, in, in this team, and the Sox have a lot invested in him. So I think the, 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 the pitching staff, too, will benefit from him being around. So I think they'll do whatever they can to sort of make him happy, even if it's just for one additional year, then maybe try doing it again the year after that. I know that's not ideal for a player just signing one-year deals, but maybe they, those things can sort themselves out as the financial picture becomes a little bit more clear uh, across baseball. Uh, look who's checking in here. His, his second mention of the program here, Pete Hand. Hello, my name is Mr. Hand. 
Pete Hand, I really like this email this week. Uh, he, he writes this, fellas, I'm listening to the Mailbag podcast from last Monday, and Herb said something which I need to understand. How is Aziz Ansari funny? Funny how? Like a clown? <laughs> Does he amuse you? <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Herb, now is your chance to defend Aziz Ansari. The floor is yours. <laughs> He just has a common man approach to his comedy where he's a small brown man. And as a bigger brown man, I can relate to his comedy. He's just a hilarious, hilarious guy. If you haven't seen his first couple uh, stand-up specials, um, you're missing out some stuff. And then when he turns into Randy with A-Days, it's just great. It's just absurdist humor. I I enjoy what he is about. And And his Hollywood stories, too. Him hanging out with Kanye, uh... A bit is really hilarious. Um, I don't know. It's just a good, good laugh every time I get to see Aziz Ansari. Unless it was that last comedy special, which oof, that will that one. If you were just getting introduced to Aziz Ansari and that was your introduction to him, I can understand why you don't <laughs> think he's funny. And not every comic is for everybody. He's not the every comic, and probably more of a a show comic than a a guy that actually is a stand-up he's a guy that can tell jokes he's kind of like Childish Gambino he can tell jokes and he can do a a stand-up set but he's not a stand-up comedian if you know what I mean he's more of a sketch comedian he's more of a funny person that you know his stand-up shows won't really relate to the regular stand-up fans so I just like him he's um if you ever never if you've never seen Master of None, the first two seasons have only done two seasons, which is criminal. You need to go and watch Netflix Master of None. He just hits it perfectly. Their best episode is their Thanksgiving episode. Um, I just no, there's no not much more to say. He's just a genius in that show and writing that show, and it's a. Uh, two episodes that go by really quickly and funny and just top, relatable. I mean, I don't know if you don't like Aziz Ansari, it's just not your type of humor. It doesn't mean that he's not funny himself. You know, unfunny comedians are alike out there. There, you know, Carlos Mencia's out there, that Dane Cook guy's out there. Those guys are unfunny comedians. Aziz Ansari is not an unfunny comedian. He just has a special taste. He doesn't, you know, play to a special audience or, um, his his jokes won't go have mass appeal for comedy fans like you, Tanny. It'll have mass appeal for more of a broad, like regular thirty Midwestern white girl type of thing. <laughs> yeah, which I I, I I pride myself of being. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you and your 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 pumpkin uh, spice uh, nitro cold brews that we have almost every day now at the Score Studios. Um, you're as white girl as they come. Uh, but yeah, like I first saw Aziz back in the movie Funny People, where we first saw the Randy with Eight A's bit, and I thought that was different and it was funny, and it was like you know, a, a new voice, a new perspective, something you haven't heard before. But then I watched his. I think it was his first special. And I just generally, and I'm I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not you know I'm gonna put this caveat on everything I say about Aziz. I haven't seen every special he's had. I've seen a couple episodes of Master of None. You know, I, I know you enjoy it, but for me, it's like you know, wasn't one of my favorite things. But I do like uh, the great Eric Wareheim, who was I think a, a, he was on the show and also another one of the writers. Uh, from Tim and Eric, who's just absolutely brilliant. But when I think of Aziz Ansari, I think of it like you said. It's like agreeable humor. Like he'll get up there and he'll just you know just tell stories without crafting any uh, any. There's no 
there's no construction of actual jokes and it's not it doesn't like you know titillate me at a, in a in a deep emotional level or intellectual level where i'm like damn that's some great wordplay right there like you know george carlin crafting a uh, a monologue or something like that or you know for me it's just agreeable it's like he'll get up there in front of like you know 50,000 people and be like you guys racism it's wrong and then like people like ah yeah it is wrong (laughs) you know like i'm like okay it's just it's agreeable (laughs) like it just yeah we're all in agreement there you know and so i think he goes for just what'll get the most applause you know like if so if he'll throw around 50 cents name or kanye west name in a bit like that's recognizable and like you know people automatically like they the juxtaposition of him and those type of guys like that's a funny concept so like that carries a lot of weight when he's when he's out there you know uh, on stage so like you know he 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 does have that presence where he's up there and you automatically want to laugh because he's like engaging and and just naturally seems likable and funny um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it's too agreeable. Like, you know, it's, it's not hard to get a, a room to, to agree with you on certain social topics. You know, we're all pretty, you know, despite what you may think looking at social media, most people, most reasonable people, certainly most comedy fans, you know, people who are progressive and they like stand up comedy and, you know, like they're going to be in agreement on most topics, especially something like racism or sexism. It's wrong. You know, and thanks everybody. I'm out of here. Um, it just it's not for, it's not for me. I like stuff with a little uh, bit more more of an edge. You know, but I'm not going to yuck another man's yum. If you like them, that's fine. And if our listeners like them, that's cool. I'm glad. You know, it's it's you know that's why stand up comedy is so great. There's there's something out there for everyone. You know, I, I like a little bit darker, a little edgier. You know, stuff a little that that makes you think a little bit. You know, um, stuff that makes you question your own beliefs. You know, so I, I like stuff like that. But yeah, I'm not a huge Aziz guy. Um, you know, and it, it, it's unfortunate, but I probably will never go back and, and watch any of those specials just because I know I, I don't think it's for me. But I'm not closing. The, I'm not shutting the door completely on Aziz as, 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 a, as a guy who I may like because, you know, it, it's comedy, man. So what's funny is funny. And, and certainly, you know, he's a guy that every once in a while he could you know, certainly surprise me. Like, all right, I appreciate that bit. Like that was well worded. You know, it, he, 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 do, he does uh make it work i'll put that but i i think i'm in agreement with pete hand on, on this regard and about a z so i guess you know we do disagree on something here it's not often this season with a team in first place but we found something that we disagree with and it's of course aziz ansari and so i just last word on master of none it only went two seasons it's not going to go for a third sadly enough but you know they have lena wait on the show you said eric weinheim weinheim um those guys you know, it's a brilliantly done show, like amazingly done show with those type of guys. Like Lena Waite now doing all these type of specials. Aziz created the show. Noel Wells was on the show. Uh, Wareheim, as you said, Kelvin Yu, and he was writ- co-written with uh, Alan Yang. So they have a lot of good comedy writing. If you like sitcom, formulaic sitcoms back in the day, 80s, 90s, this is right up your alley. It takes place in New York and Italy, too. So um, enjoy you some Master of None. 20 episodes that go by really quickly and makes you want more. And that's the sad part about Master of None and Atlanta. God damn it, I haven't had an extra season of Atlanta yet. What's going on, Childish? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
the couple of emails here I think we've already addressed with some of uh, what we said over the course of the week and another one here from our guy Jay Crowley Jay and Kevin uh, they they always check in when they want their They check in, and he has a fun assignment for the class, which it doesn't sound like fun, and I don't have time to do it. But if you guys want to go ahead and do it on your own time, by all means. He says, go back to the Sox rosters and determine who was the first player younger than you to appear for the Sox. Then look up the last guy to play that was older than you, if applicable. Uh, Jay, I got to admit, I don't have time to do that. I have a kid who's about ready to start school. Uh, But he does uh, say, my first guy younger than me was Mike Caruso on March 31st, 1998. Uh, The last older guy was Omar Vizquel, September 20th, 2011. Uh, keep up the great work, Jay and Kevin. Yeah, Jay, I am not going to do that. Maybe uh, I, when I take a vacation, I can have I can find time to go back and look for those things. Uh, Herb, do you remember a player that was uh, younger than you, the first player that was younger than you? I don't. I don't recall specifically. Um, I'm an older dude, now 41, so yeah. there are not any, I don't think, on the White Sox currently that are older than me. Um, but younger, I do not remember the first player. I was like, oh, man, that's a guy that is uh, really young. I could do the opposite or just a different thing where the first player I remember watching from infancy until he played until his Hall of Fame career ended. Of course, that's Frank Thomas. Yep, Absolutely. So I could do that. Yeah. Uh, how about not? Jay, we don't have this. To, you know, we've already we're recording a podcast here. I, we have lives. OK, we don't have time to do these extra homework. I mean, assignments. I don't. But, but yeah, I don't either. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. But if any of our Lockdown Sox listeners want to go back and share some of those, maybe uh, that would be fun. But yeah, I appreciate you always checking in, of course, Jay and Kevin. Uh, but yeah, uh, we have another one here. Sam from Hinsdale in short. You know, he's asking about the rotation and what do you think they should do? Uh, with only a couple weeks left here, and, and I think we answered that earlier, I think the best course to solidify this rotation a bit is to get Dane Dunning in that number three spot to try to ramp him up uh, by the time the playoffs go because he has the best swing and miss stuff, and his stuff profiles, I think, the best in a playoff situation. Uh, Dylan sees, uh, you know, around the strike zone a little too much, so, you know, in terms of his fastball, um, you know, walks too many people for my liking. That doesn't mean that, you know, he, he couldn't contribute in a playoff series, in a long series, but I think we're in agreement there that, and I think the Sox know it, uh, that the that the guy who profiles best for them to start game three of a playoff series would, would be uh, Dane Dunning. Would, would you be in agreement on that? I think we can move on quickly there. You're in agreement, right? Yeah, I'm in agreement. Okay, so thank you, of course, Sam from Hinsdale for checking in. Uh, the Rodon thing, I'm not counting on Carlos Rodon until he's up, uh, you know, starting a game for them or appearing in relief. Like, I, I just don't know what to expect from him at this point, and I certainly wouldn't bank on him the rest of the way. But it would be a pleasant surprise if he could. I, I wouldn't trust him to start a playoff game, but it would be a pleasant surprise maybe if you're trying to get Keuchel an extra period of rest. You know, you could finesse that in a way where if Carlos Rodon wants to throw a few innings for you, then maybe bullpen it the rest of the way. Cool. But, yeah, I think Dane Dunning is what they're trying to do. You're, you're seeing him ramp up there. Uh, he was up in the uh, near 90 pitch mark uh, this past outing against the Royals. So I think they're trying to, to stretch him out uh, into a number three spot in the rotation uh, when they start a playoff series and a guy that can go deep into a playoff game if need be. Next one here from Dan in Georgia. This one is short and sweet as we approach the end of this episode here. Dan asks this, who's the biggest asshole Chicago sports star, athlete, or even media that you have encountered? A story would be great. Thanks. That's from Dan in Georgia. I don't really have one. I've been trying long and hard ever since Dan sent this one with the subject line story time. And I'm a bad storyteller. Like I'll remember things. Like I'm sure I'll remember something after we start recording, after we stop recording here. I'll remember a great story. But, you know, being in 
Sports Radio, I, I say this all the time. You know, I, I met Frank Thomas when he was at the Score Studios, and I'd always worried about meeting Frank in person. We told the story on the podcast, but when you work in a professional setting, you n- hardly ever see someone on their worst day or at their natural uh, resting bitch face uh, position of a pro athlete. So I don't have many uh, instances uh, of, of an athlete being an asshole or a media person being an asshole. Well, there's a, there's a ton of assholes in media, mm-hmm. let's be honest, uh, but I don't consider that part of it. You know, that just, It's part of what comes with the territory of working in radio where we're talking about working with a lot of broken people, myself included. People get in the industry because they're, they're missing something in their life and they, you know, Anytime a person says I must have a microphone in front of my face, you got problems with that person. You got to be careful, be very wary. But I don't have any athlete stories, but uh, I bet you have one, don't you? Well, the one I think of in particular is back in the day, I was a executive producer for Jonathan Hood for probably like six, seven months. It was a short lived thing just because they promoted me way before I was ready to the Mike North show. But Jonathan and I were doing great night shows. I think it was 2000, 2001, maybe into 2002. And what we would usually do is a night show. So it started at like six o'clock. So in the days or sometimes when we had extra time and were preempted by other things on the score, we would go to practices or games and introduce ourselves to these players and these uh, media uh, people, the public relations people, just so you know, face the name understand that we're not hiding and we're going to talk about you during the year and see what you're all about. And these are the people, if you ever have a problem with what we say, these are the faces, here's our number, call us up type of thing. And so we would go and one of the relationships that we sparked up because he was such a great talker. He's a big time bears fan and just an underrated player at the time was Aaron Rowan. And so we're talking to Aaron Rowan. I don't. I remember it was early. It was either two thousand one or two thousand two. Oh, no. So he wasn't starting. Oh no! He wasn't he? Wasn't I, playing. I don't at like all. where this is headed, Herbie. No, no, no. Okay. So he wasn't playing at all. But he, you know, he was getting. You know, when he did play, he was impressing. Everybody liked Aaron Rowan back in the day, I and mean, you know, always they liked Aaron Rowan. And so we would just be around Aaron Rowan's locker before or after the game, talking to him, a guy that doesn't really play that much. And we would, every time, Aaron Rowan's locker was right next to this guy who played on the north side, played in Cleveland, played other places. His name is Kenny Lofton. And he would just evil eye us the whole time because he knew we were media members or two black dudes in the locker room talking to this white dude who doesn't play at all zero, <laughs> zero playing time and he's like what the fuck he was like just giving us this evil eye every single time and kind of uh, a voice like hey can i get over here hey can i get to my locker type of thing like being very rude like like um dismissive of us and it wasn't you know we weren't in his space but he was go out of his way to make sure that we knew that he's Kenny Lofton and that you shouldn't be talking to Aaron Rowan little old Aaron Rowan and so yeah we had bad interactions with him um and as far as non-Chicago guys it was a Bulls game back in the day where Yao Ming was in his rookie year, I believe. So we wanted to go and see the Yao Ming thing, the phenomenon that is Yao dominating the first half. He probably scored like 20 points. He looked great. And then the two veteran point guards shut him out pretty much in the second half, and they lost. 
So we went to the locker room to get the 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 the, the gist of what happened in that second half to these Houston Rockets guards. And Steve Francis and Catino Mobley didn't want to hear anything about that. We're like, hey, you know, y'all scored 20 points in the first half and got like four touches in the second. What's up with that? And they kind of took offense to our questioning because they lost. It was a the heat of the battle, probably like 30 minutes after the game, and didn't like our question. It was me and Lawrence Atkins, one of my good friends. Uh, he used to work at the score back in the day, L.A. And it seemed like Catino and Steve Francis wanted to square up. Now, we're not the smallest people in the world, but they're not the biggest people either. So <laughs> it was a fair fight. I, we would have lost. We would have got our <laughs> ass kicked. But there was no punk in us. We were we were ready to fight Catino Mobley and Steve Francis. I probably taken Steve Francis because he's the bigger, the more bulky guy and got my ass kicked. And then Lawrence Atkins probably would have had a chance versus a cut. Um and then after Steve Francis beat my ass, he would have ganged up on Lawrence and beat his ass. So we were not afraid of those two people. But, yeah, I would say Kenny Lofton and then for non-Chicago athlete, the franchise and Catino Mobley. I, those were names I didn't think would be mentioned in the Mailbag Monday edition of Locked On Sox. Kenny Lofton, Steve Francis, and, and Catino Mobley. Uh, whenever I think of Kenny Lofton, I mean – one of my favorite things is when he, he was on the McNeil and Parkin show with us and he was on promoting a movie. I, I don't even remember what it was, but he was like directing or he was one of the investors in, in a movie. So, you know, uh, Danny Parkins asked him quite naturally, oh, you're a big movie guy. What are, what are some of your favorite movies? And his answer was hilarious. Kenny Lofton joins us on the score. So, all right, Kenny Lofton, the film buff. You know, what, what are some of your favorite movies? Um, you know what? I just I I I still want to. Um, um, I think my main <laughs> one is um. Oh, some off the top of my head, and this kind of caught me off of that one. The Matrix, again, because of the special special effects. effects. Yeah, I know kung fu. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you know kung fu? <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's a line in the Matrix. <laughs> Oh my god, it's funny every time, dude. Like, like, oh, like, my, I, I get the douche chills. Like, whenever I listen to that clip, like him, because I know what it's like to be put on the spot. You know, like, you know, if, if I'm on the radio and if someone asks me an easy question, you know, like, it's it's nerve wracking, you know, to try to think of something. And this, he's not the only person to have that happen to. When we had Cole Wright of Marquee, you know, they talk, they were talking about music, and you know, all of a sudden they asked him who was his favorite musical artist, and he couldn't think of one. Like, it's a weird thing being put on the spot so i i get that but then like to say it you know one of the great lines from the movie and then he just it was a total clunker from kenny lofton and i, I don't want to clown him but if he was mean to you then i'm forever anti kenny lofton so forget him i could care less about kenny lofton's feelings on this episode so yeah he wasn't even good i mean he was <laughs> decent as a hitter but he wasn't like the kenny lofton that i thought we we're gonna get that at that time it was late stages of his career i think he was 35 36 or something yeah. like that so yeah i i, I mean I think the Cubs got a better version of Kenny Lofton than the White Sox did. So, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he was a dick. But apparently us. in that 03 Cubs team, he was like one of the main factors why that team was able to take the next step because of, you know, his performance and his like veteran leadership. So maybe, you know, it serves a purpose, but obviously if you're a media member, maybe not so much. Like, you know, having that, that grit and that edge doesn't do a whole lot for you. Uh, but yeah, I wish I had something to add to this, uh, you know, biggest asshole argument, but I've never been – uh, in a locker room covering a game, like I've I've covered Sox Fest in a professional capacity, hey. but hey, I never had a press pass, um, you know. But I've never covered a game because of my schedule at the afternoon show. It's hard to get out there, 
um, in, in, that, in that environment. So, you know, it's not because I'm, I'm hiding or don't want to do it. But, yeah, I haven't had many interactions uh, on a one-on-one level with an athlete other than being on the phone. You know, It was going to be our intention if the season was a regular season. Yep. We were going to be at most of these games uh, as a press members or just as fans. So, yeah, maybe next year if everything goes back to normal, we can do that. Because I think now they're only allowing one press member per uh, exactly. affiliate. Yep. And so I think ours is their WSCR or locked on the I don't know if they even give us credentials because, you know, sometimes, well, they give other people credentials. So maybe uh, I got to ask Paul Sullivan if they can get in. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'd be comfortable just saying the score because <laughs> then they see that like, oh, you're just a podcaster. You're a blogger. All of a sudden that has like a stigma to it. You know what I mean? So but uh, yeah, th- thanks for the question. I wish I had one to add. I'm sure I'll think of one. And I, and I, I promise you, if I can think of one uh, in one of the next episodes, I may wake up in the middle of the night and be like, uh, Paul Asenmacher <laughs> out of nowhere, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll add it. Uh, but thank you for the question. Uh, there was another, like, all right, was an asshole. <laughs> Absolutely. Notorious. Uh, uh, another one here quickly, Matt, uh, Matt Haverty checking in. Uh, he's talking about Luis Roberts outfield defense and how he seems to be scared of the wall after seeing that play on Saturday night in the ninth inning. I don't think Luis Roberts scared of anything. And I, and I think this is why you should always email us as close to recording as you can because sometimes these takes look a little suspect he's because he's basically asking about timing with Luis Robert versus someone like Byron Buxton who's been out there already for a number of years and who's uh, an excellent center fielder but Luis Robert his timing just isn't quite there yet in terms of plays at the wall I know we would like to see him rob more home runs and there's certainly been a couple that have dinged off his glove and went over the wall or, you know, he just missed, missed times the jump a little bit, but I think he'll get there. And, and Stone spoke to that effect over the weekend. I think after the email came in, but that's not something I worry about because he's got all the athletic ability to go out there. And after I saw that catch on Saturday night, oh my God, Herb, we haven't talked about that catch from Luis Robert. Good Lord. What an amazing play, uh, the play of the year for the White Sox for sure. Yeah, and it looked like he went 88 feet to rob that ball from Mr. I forgot Franco. who hit it. Franco, Michael. yeah, 88 feet, and then in 4.3 seconds, just lightning fast. He was in left center field pretty much, shading him that way, and the jump he got was perfect. He understood where the ball was going, where it was going to land. That is amazing, just to understand flight, how a right-hander hits a ball to the opposite field, how it's going to go the other way and cut a little bit. He was perfectly placed, and the dive was perfectly timed. I, When I saw it, I was like, he didn't make the catch. Did he make that catch? How did he make the catch? How? It was the best catch I've seen a rookie make ever, firstly. Like, from where he had to come from, where he had to do to get to the ball. Like, people, some people can't make that catch. It was like a 15% probability. Like, that's high. I think that's high. I don't think I yeah. mean, that, that was like, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. So it's like people you regular center fielders can't make that play because they won't be there. They won't get the good jump that he got. They won't have the the makeup speed if you don't get a good jump type of thing. And that's a rare things that he can do that not many others can do. I don't know if Kyle Lewis can do that. I don't know if Trent Grisham can do that. I don't know if Cody Bellinger can do that. Some of your best center fielders in the game can't do the play that he did. And it wasn't necessarily a, like a game saver, but you get a starter inning off with it was a two-run lead with a guy on second or third. 
you got something going. Maybe yep. the Kansas City Royals can have a rally there and do something. So maybe it is a game saver because you just get that one out on the board. You know that you're not hitting anything out there. And Steve Stone said it. They had the outfield of Dyson, him, and Ingle out there. They're going to cover everything like the Minnesota damn Twins back in the day. Absolutely. So, yeah, in, in short, thank you for the email there, uh, Matt. I don't think Luis Roberts afraid of the wall. I think it's just a timing thing. Like, I, you think about it. How many times does he have an opportunity to rob a home run? And it, he had me convinced in that Friday night game, I think it was, that he went back on the wall dead center and he caught that ball. Remember the one that dinged off his glove onto the wall and then back oh, to his bare yes. hand? I was like, oh, he caught that ball. Absolutely. Because he's so smooth out there. And because he's so smooth out there, I, I think eventually he will make that adjustment. Uh, finally here, wrapping it up. Patrick weighing in. He asked this question. Hey, what's up, Herb and Chris? Hope you guys are having a great long weekend. It has been great. Wondering what do you think of Jason Benetti's bring him home slogan? He's tagged on to most of his home runs. Personally, I feels a little forced to me, but then sometimes I find myself yelling at the TV, hell yeah, bring him home because I'm just so damn pumped. Since you're both on the radio and have heard and analyzed many home run calls, I figured you have thoughts and opinions on this. Loving the season. Damn right we are. Patrick. Thank you, Patrick, for checking in. shot bring him home herb what do you think of bring him home it's not my favorite thing but i understand that he's trying to have a catchphrase a thing that you go by you hear the dick Gimberg, it's oh my and hawk harrelson put it on the board yes this is his trademark home run call it's fine it's it works when you think about jason benetti i think in the future you one of his things will be bring him home you know it's it's fine it's no one's done it before, so he's not stealing off of somebody, and it's original, And but just, you know, fine. It's all right. <laughs> but when you think of Jason Benetti, you'll think about that. And nowadays, he's saying outrageous a lot. Outrageous! He reminds me of Lionel Richie back except an American <laughs> Music Award. Outrageous! I like his outrageous '88. Like that. Like that. You know, felt that felt good and natural after that Robert catch uh, on Saturday night. But yeah, I, I, you know, here, here's the thing. Like, I don't really think too much about it. Um, and he, I'm looking at baseball on the radio. Uh, the first ever game was broadcast on the great, of course, KDKA in Pittsburgh. August 5th, 1921. So you're talking about literally almost 100 years of baseball games being broadcasted and how many different broadcasters have cycled into radio or TV booths over the years. It's really hard to come up with your own catchphrase. So I think when you talk about this, you know, I think all the catchphrases that are that are really really good are they're taken. <laughs> it's been a hundred years. It's hard, but all I care about is when people are themselves. Like I just want Jason to be himself, and whatever you think of that you're comfortable saying, I think these things they stick over time, and we get used to them. And you know, I, I think it's just it's different for us, so that's why it sounds a little jarring at times. Like we noticed it first when he started doing it a couple of home runs in a row. You're like, oh, okay, that's going to be his thing now. Then you have to think, oh, how do we think about that? Oh, it's not put him on the board, but but that's done. We're done with put him on the board. You know what I mean? Like, so that's that's fine. All I want is for broadcasters to be themselves and have their own personality shine through. So I think we won't even be talking about this a year from now. It'll just be a thing, and you'll you'll see it on T-shirts and everywhere, and we'll we'll associate that with Benetti. So I guess you know I I I don't mind it one bit. You know, it's him. So you know, it's 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 not. 
bad in my opinion um you know i I don't know how many different ways you can call a home run (laughs) anymore after 100 years of baseball broadcast but what's he gonna do out there be like uh be like brockmeyer um with his home run calls like he certainly has the comedy chops You know, unless he wants to go the Brockmeyer route, you know. But, yeah, I, I don't mind bring him home. Uh, I, I like uh, the emphatic ones, you know, the big the ones in the big spots where it was one of the walk-offs, I think, where he just yells, bring him home. Like, I like that, you know. So I guess I, I do like it. But it, it's really hard, man, to come up with your catchphrase. And he didn't try to shoehorn it early on either. Like, he sort of let the broadcast breathe and develop its own thing. And, by the way, like, before I say anything about bring him home, it's, the, it's by far – I think the best baseball broadcast anywhere, TV or radio. We, we're lucky enough to have that on the south side with Jason Benny and Steve Stone. So whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to say after a home run is cool with me, but I think these things are best answered over time where they we become used to it, and all of a sudden we couldn't imagine, like, how did we ever live without bring him home? You know, as the team ascends and, and he keeps doing it and keeps doing his thing, I think it will we'll look at it warmly. So, yeah, I think that, that best answer is that. You know, who am I to criticize bring him home? You know, I can't think of anything better. <laughs> I think more importantly, I would tell him, like, hey, you should try doing this. You know, but I can't think of any uh, more creative ways to call a home run (laughs) without saying I think I think he was the same person, Patrick, who asked me if anyone's ever used the term dong in a public setting on a professional broadcast. (laughs) Like he started anecdotally being referred to as dong. But, uh, you know, just the people just talking about it sort of folksy, but he's never heard an announcer say dong. And I don't think you'll ever hear that. So until (laughs) your guy, Rick Sudler, probably say dong. Yeah, but he's oh brother. We just hit a couple dongs. Hey, man. <laughs> you gotta love to see those dunks out here on a Sunday against the White Sox. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think you'll you'll see that. He's not a play by play guy either, so he definitely would say that. I think uh, analyzing one, but yeah, play by play. I'm absolutely fine with bring him home because it's it's his thing, man. So it just. You know, who, who am I to, to say, no, stop doing that? So that about does it uh, for this edition, this Mailbag Monday. couple were left on the cutting room floor. Maybe we'll get to at another time, but we're already about 90 minutes into this thing, so we'll keep it there, and hopefully you can have a nice little Labor Day and, and, and check out the show and while you're out there grilling maybe, you're getting a little, a little alone time from the family. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mailbag Monday, and how can they get a hold of us once again for the next episode? Yay, 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 yay. LockedOnSocks at gmail.com. Email LockedOnSocks at gmail.com. Questions, comments, off-the-wall, out-of-the-box questions. We'll answer them if they're good. We appreciate everybody. We read them all. Not all make the Mailbag Monday episodes. So LockedOnSocks at gmail.com to email the show, to follow the show on Twitter. It is at LockedOnSocks. Individually, Chris Tannehill at Chris Tannehill. Me, EcknerWall23. For Herb Lawrence. So for Chris Tannehill, I'm Herb Lawrence. We have been enjoying this 90 minutes of Labor Day, not working on Locked On Socks. <laughs>